Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Images of Christ. This series looks at the images of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and how they represent four aspects of Jesus Christ, the true human, king, servant, and God. Amen. If we can come on back to our seats. We're, uh, as I said, today we're going to be beginning our series for Advent, which we are calling uh, Images of Christ. And if you notice up here on the stage, we have four images. I want to thank Cindy Bell, uh, who I think is actually probably upstairs with the kids right now. She prayed for the kids this morning. Cindy painted these several years ago for a series we did during Lent that was similar, but we are really appreciative of all our talents. She spent a lot of hours, and then she had to rework them for our current series. And each week you'll see whichever image we're focusing on, and again, I'm going to describe what they are, it'll be kind of highlighted. Uh, the, these, are, these are big images uh, of Christ. And so that's going to be our focus during Advent, which is really, who is Jesus and what did he do? That's what we're going to be talking about in this series. Today we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which is the opening verse of the entire New Testament. And you can follow along on the screen. It's also in your little uh, devotional guide booklet. Um, which, by the way, also has some cards that you can hand out to folks to invite them to the series and to the uh, Christmas Eve service. Um, So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the word of our redeeming God. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How many parents in here have ever heard children have a ridiculous argument with one another? Any parents ever have that experience? You know, he's looking out my window, she's touching me, she's pointing at me. We've all been there and and watched those silly arguments, right? If you study the history of the church, some people feel like the church in the early centuries had the same kind of arguments. There were a lot of arguments over who is Jesus And exactly what did he do? What does it mean that he's human? Is he really human? What does it mean that he's God? Is he really fully God? What's the relationship between Jesus' deity and his humanity? And a lot of Christians today look at that stuff and say, that's the equivalent of two kids saying, they're looking out my window, make them stop. And it just isn't the silly arguments. To which the answer is no. In fact, the entire gospel depended on those. They were anything but silly, because if we don't understand who Jesus is, we can't understand what he did, and then we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand what it is that we would celebrate. So we're going to be looking over this entire Advent season, we're going to be looking at four aspects of Jesus' person and work. And these four aspects or images are based on the vision that Ezekiel had, which John repeats in Revelation 4, but in Ezekiel 1.10, Ezekiel gets an image into the throne room of God, and he sees these four living creatures. And he says uh, in Ezekiel 1.10, their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side he had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox, and each also had the face of an eagle. 
In John's vision and revelation, they were four separate creatures. And the early church adopted these symbols. I talked about it in the After Hours video this week. You can go back and look at it. They related them to the Gospels and to other things because they came to see that these particular creatures, each of them uh, revealed an aspect of who Jesus is and what he did. So each week, we're going to look at one of these. So today, we start with this image of a man, and we're going to be talking about the fact that that image is there because Jesus is the true human. When we say Jesus is the man, we mean he is the true human. So notice, we'll dive in and look at quite a number of verses that talk about this. Again, the New Testament begins, interestingly enough, not with the deity of Christ, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, but with the humanity of Jesus. Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you remember, you get 18 verses where it goes through and says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, all the way down to Jesus. It be, the gospel begins with Jesus' human genealogy, and it traces to these, in particular, two important people, David and Abraham, in the genealogy. But what it's doing is it's showing that Jesus is truly human. And right from the very first verse of the New Testament, we learn if you want to understand Jesus and his work, you have to know he is truly and fully human. He doesn't just appear to be human, isn't kind of like us. He is truly and fully human. And this is the teaching throughout the New Testament. For example, if you go to Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't begin with the genealogy. He doesn't get to it until Jesus' baptism in Luke 3. But he does something interesting. In Luke 3, he goes through the whole genealogy, but he blows right past Abraham and keeps going back. And notice in verse 38, he ends it, and he says, There was the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam and ultimately to God himself and saying that Jesus is one of us. Uh, Paul, when he writes Romans, which is his magnum opus, when Paul lays out the gospel, and he's got the time, he's there in jail, he's writing it all out, and he's telling the Romans this is the gospel. Notice how he begins it at the, at the beginning. He says, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and he's talking about Jesus Christ our Lord. He brings in the deity of Christ, which we'll look at in a few weeks. But notice, Paul says, I'm going to talk about the gospel. And the first thing I've got to tell you is, Jesus has a human nature. And that human nature is descended from David. Hebrews talks about the person and work of Jesus. The entire letter is on that. And early in the letter, we're told in Hebrews 2.14, that since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. The whole New Testament starts with the humanity of Jesus. Luke traces it all the way back to Adam. Paul begins his gospel with the humanity of Jesus. And the book of Hebrews says Jesus had to share in our humanity if he was going to accomplish his work. So it's all over, and I could show you many other places in the New Testament. But that should bring a question up to you and to me. Why did Jesus have to be human? 
Why does that make any difference? Is that really important for us, or is this a silly argument? Well, the New Testament is quite clear that he did have to be human. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw up a a question out of our catechism. Now, some people, the, the word catechism sounds very old. It just means a question and answer format to learn what's most important about the faith. And in it, one of the questions that we ask is, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Why did Jesus have to be human? And here's the answer that we have in our catechism. The Redeemer must be truly human so that he might fulfill humanity's obligations to God by completely obeying God's law and suffering and dying for human disobedience. So notice he has to be human to do two things. Number one, to fulfill humanity's obligations. As the creation of God, as the image of God, you and I owe something to God. All human beings do. But secondly, we have a problem, which is we've not done as we ought to do. We have sinned. And that sin, that cosmic treason, has to be paid for. And so the Redeemer, Jesus, has to be human to do those two things. Now what I want to do is take a few minutes and show you this is what the New Testament teaches over and over again. It lies at the heart of why we celebrate Christmas every year. Now, to fulfill humanity's obligations, this is what uh, theologians like to talk about, Jesus being the second Adam, or Jesus being the true and better Adam. Again, remember, in Luke's gospel, there's a reason why Luke doesn't stop with Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam and says that Adam sprang from God. Luke 3.38, Jesus is the son of Adam. He's trying to teach us something that this one who has come has come in the likeness of Adam. Uh, In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, all of Romans 5 is talking about two Adams. The first Adam who failed and the second Adam who's obeyed. In verse 19, which is kind of a summary near the end of the chapter, Paul says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Notice what Paul says. Look, Adam messed up. And we all got trouble out of that. Trouble everywhere we look. But, here's the good news, Jesus, who's like Adam, he's the second Adam, he didn't mess up. He obeyed, and we all get the benefit of that. We all get the good that comes out of that. In 1 Corinthians, entirely different group, but Paul writes and says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he's talking about the resurrection, and he says this near the end of the chapter. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. You remember that's Genesis 2, where God breathes into him the breath of life. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. See, Adam just received life and then blew it and lost it. Jesus has life to give. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. Adam was created out of the dust. Jesus already eternally existed, but came and took dust from him. So notice Paul's playing here and saying there's two Adams. And these two Adams, while they're the same in a lot of ways, they're very different in what happens. Adam was given life, loses it. Jesus has life to give. Adam is of the earth. Jesus is of heaven in his very essence. So Jesus is the second Adam, and this is important because it means he succeeds where Adam failed. 
Adam's sin brought you and me disaster. Disaster, friends. Why is there death in the world? It's not the natural state of things. This is not how it was meant to be. Death is here because of Adam's sin. Condemnation is here because of Adam's sin. His sin brought you and me disaster. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The second Adam, his obedience brought us salvation. His obedience gives us righteousness. Adam is brought to life out of the dust. Jesus comes from heaven and gives life to our dust, to who we are. And in fact, remember Paul's telling us that in a chapter on resurrection. He's saying, look, even when you die because of what Adam did and because of what you've done and you return to dust, have no fear. The second Adam has come and he's going to give life back to that dust. He's going to raise you up. This is the hope of resurrection. So as Adam is the founder of humanity, Jesus is the founder of a new humanity, the redeemed people of God. And this is our hope and this is the gospel. This is why in the book of Hebrews, it says in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Adam was posed with the temptation regarding food and failed. Jesus, you remember in the wilderness, what's the first temptation? Food. And he succeeds. Adam, in pride, rejected God's will. Jesus, in humility, embraces God's will. And so we have a high priest. We have an Adam who stands, and it's not that he does not understand. He knows exactly what Adam went through. He knows exactly what you and I go through, but here's the difference. Where Adam failed, where we fail, Jesus never fails. He has fulfilled our obligations to God by completely obeying God's law. All of our obligations. Now hold on, because I'm going to come back in a couple minutes why that's important and why this is going to be very practical for you when you wake up tomorrow morning. Second aspect, however, is the Redeemer has to be human not only to obey, but to suffer and die for human disobedience. The Scripture tells us this. The, the Scripture I had from Hebrews 2 a few minutes ago says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, notice we're now moving towards his death, not just his life, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And in verse 17, he's kind of concluding this little section, he says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement, that means bearing the wrath, for the sins of the people. Jesus became human to bring salvation by destroying our enemy, the devil. It means because of what Jesus has done, there is no question what's going to happen when you and I die. There's not going to be a wrestling match at the end of the ages, and maybe you'll be okay and maybe you won't be. No, the match has already happened. Game, set, match. 
Jesus has won. He has accomplished salvation for all of the people of God. He has become human to make atonement. He has drained the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. There is no more wrath, not one drop for you if you are a child of God. It has all been born. Every penalty you owed to God has been paid by Jesus Christ. And this is why when Jesus comes, the angel says to Joseph, you name him Jesus because he will do what? Save his people from their sins. He has delivered us from our sin. And so what this means for us, when you understand these two aspects together, we understand where you and I stand before God. The result is sin is paid and righteousness is given. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul puts this together for us, and he says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that, because it doesn't just stop there, that's where we want to stop, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hear what Paul says, Jesus became human because in his death he paid the penalty, he paid every debt you owe to God. But again, please understand, it doesn't stop there. How many of you have heard before, justification is just as if I'd never sinned, period. That's a half-truth. Because if that were true, you would be left saying, okay, well, now i got to do all the good stuff. Because, see, Adam was in that place in the garden, wasn't he? But, see, notice Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and says that what Jesus has done is you actually become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to you because he obeyed in our place. Have you ever wondered why if God wants, if Jesus has to just come and pay the penalty for your sin, why didn't he just get incarnated on a cross one day? Why do we need to go through 33 years? Because he isn't just paying for your sin. He's obeying in your place so that he can give righteousness to you. See, if you stop with the first half, it's like a football team, and if they're like us, their record is 0-15, and they're looking at the clock in the last seconds of the season, and they're about to be 0-16. And justification is the season is rewound, but you're not back to the beginning where you're 0-0, because what would we do with our season again? I'll end up 0-15 again and sitting there at the clock. Here's the gospel. The season is rewound, and then it is fast-forward, and you're not only 16-0. You win the division. You win the conference. You win the Super Bowl. You are world champ because Jesus gives his righteousness to you. Game, set, match, season, career, all done by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what justification is for you and me. And this is why it matters. It's not pointless and silly. Because you wake up daily and so do I. And we all go through this struggle where I have failed. And the enemy comes to us and he speaks to us. And he says that we have not fulfilled the word of God. And 
he is speaking more truth than he knows. Because he doesn't even know the depth of your sin and mine. But here's the good news. Jesus has fulfilled the will of God. And he did it for you. And it's given to you. So how do we apply this? What does it mean for us? Two questions I want to ask this morning. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Which we'll be doing each week. Number one. Do you see why Jesus had to be truly fully human? This is not a minor point. This is not he's touching me. Everything hinges on this. The early church part of this. There were groups called the Gnostics who said, well, he looked like he was human. He appeared to be human. They were given names from Greek words that meant to appear, to look like you were something. And the early church said, no, if he wasn't really human, we're lost. Because we have debts to God. You and I are the creatures of God. You are made of his dust. You are breathing his air. And you owe him. And so do I. And what we owe him is obedience. But what we have given him is rebellion. And as rebels, we have unleashed chaos into creation, and that's got to be paid for by a human. Some human has to come and do it. So this is why it's critical that Jesus is truly and fully human. And his humanity, he obeyed God's law and God's will perfectly, like you and I were created and called and commanded to do, And then in his humanity, he suffered and paid for the disobedience and the debt that we had built up, bearing God's full righteous wrath against sin. This is my debt fully paid. And so do we understand this? Do we understand why this is at the heart of the gospel? And this is good news. Your debt is paid. And the obedience you owe has already been done. When, to go back to the analogy of the Super Bowl champion, how many of you think that the, the team that wins the Super Bowl this year, the Cowboys, will be worried? Hey, I'm a prophet. You just need to receive the prophecy. Oh, Lord, 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 forgive this people. So when you have a football team, how many of you think after the championship is over and they're hoisting the trophy, they're sitting there saying, I hope we win, I hope we win, I hope we win? That would be ridiculous. The game is over. Friends, game is over for you. Jesus has obeyed in your place. So when the enemy comes to you and says, you did not do this, you don't have to sit there and say, well, maybe I kind of did. You can say, you are right. And Jesus helped me to do better. And when he says, no, but God's not going to hear your prayer because you have failed, you can say, you don't know the half of it. My disobedience is worse than you even know. But the obedience of my Savior is greater. And he has met you, and he has crushed you, and he has bought me away. I am his. I am owned by him. And so I stand before my Father righteous, completely righteous. Not a little bit. Not partly, fully, completely righteous. Friends, do you see, when I'm asking this question, do you see you're in a better place than Adam? You're not back in the garden 
trying to obey to earn something. It's already been done for you. Our Adam has already done it for us. Do you see this means everything is accomplished for your salvation? This is why salvation by works makes no sense. It's already been done. The full thing has been accomplished. This is why my works have no place in my justification. Friends, the application, to put it simply, is rejoice. Just as if you'd never sinned, just as if you'd completely obeyed every desire of God with every thought, every word, every deed, every desire you've ever had. That is how you stand before our God. It is good news Jesus is the man. It is very good news for you and me. Now, before we come to the table, I want to ask, which Adam is my source and my identity? Because see, here's the picture Paul gives in Romans 5. In a sense, there's two men. The first Adam and the last Adam. Which one am I finding my source and my identity in? Where am I finding my destiny? In the original Adam or in the second Adam? Do I find my life in this age and its Adam? Or do I find my life in the second Adam who's come down out of heaven and is bringing us into a new heavens and a new earth and a new age? Which one is my identity? Have I consciously given my sin over to Jesus and said, give me your righteousness? That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I realize all I can do is add to Adam's sin. I can't fix my problem. But Jesus, I accept what you've done in my place. Have you consciously done with that? If you are here, I plead with you with every fiber of my being, look to the second Adam. Look to Jesus Christ. Do not look to your own works. You cannot accomplish it on your own. You cannot bring salvation. He is more than enough. Like we say this morning, he is more than enough for everything we could possibly need. I encourage you to do that today. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And this table links us with the great exchange. That exchange where our sin is given to Jesus and his righteousness is given to us. I'm going to be praying in a few moments, but think about it. His body and his blood, his obedience in your behalf, and his payment for all you've done wrong. This is the great exchange. I want to encourage you today, if you are here and you are a believer, come, receive his righteousness, give your sin to him, and then rejoice that you are accepted before our God. Now, we're going to do something that it was kind of interesting just to show you how God can work. On my way in this morning, I was thinking, and somehow it had not occurred to me, that the perfect song for what we were studying was, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And I came in, and the team started practicing it. And I said, that, that wasn't on the list for this week. And Tom said, well, I realized last night it should be, and so I changed it over. And I had already told Dave and them, we're going to put it up during communion. We sang this song a few minutes ago. And when we're taking the elements in a few minutes, it's going to be playing Sing and worship along with it. The lyrics can be up there. And I want you to pay attention because the wondrous mystery is the true and better Adam 
has come and saved the hellbound man. He is the true and sure fulfillment of the law. So in him we stand. Everything you need is in him. So today, behold the wondrous mystery of your salvation. Before I go in, I'll remind you, if you need gluten-free, you can raise your hand in a moment, and we will get it to you. But other than that, friends, what I want to encourage you to do, if the Holy Spirit brings a sin to your heart, don't let guilt lay on you like a blanket. Confess it. Give it over. It's been paid for. And then say, Jesus, give me your righteousness. Celebrate today what he has done. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning, you would minister to your people. Father, I pray that every blood-bought child of God in this place would have a fresh revelation of what it means to stand before you justified adopted, made righteous through Jesus Christ. Ask in his name, amen. We're going to be passing out the elements, and as they do and as they're going out, I want to encourage you again, we're going to have this song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, playing, and you can follow along and sing and worship for what Jesus has done, and then I'll lead us in communion in just a few minutes. Father, out of your overflowing goodness, glory, and love, you created everything. All of creation reflects your glory and goodness, but you made humans alone in your own image, able to glorify and enjoy you forever. Yet while the rest of creation heeded your voice and obeyed your commands, our first father Adam sinned when he willfully disobeyed you. This fall has poisoned our nature so that we are born sinners, guilty before you. And Father, to our shame, since then we all choose to disobey you as well. And for this, we deserve judgment and justice equal to our infinite crime. But in the fullness of time, Jesus came forth as the second Adam, as the founder of a new humanity. He fully obeyed your will, fulfilling our duty to obey you. And he allowed himself to be put to death to pay the penalty for our disobedience. So today we take this bread, the symbol of his body, professing that we find our identity in Jesus rather than in our sin. So we receive this in faith, thanking you for our salvation and all that is ours in Christ, the true man. Take and eat. Lord, you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. 
As your image bearers, we were made to keep covenant as well. But as we have noted, we broke faith with you in Adam and in ourselves. But Jesus has come and has made a new and better covenant with us. By his blood, he has fulfilled the covenant of works and has sealed the new covenant and all of its bountiful blessings for us. By his blood, we are forgiven, purified, and made whole. By his blood, our status as your children is secured. By his blood, we are kept until the day we will see you face to face. So, Father, we thank you for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation it secures, and for the rich inheritance of every covenant promise that it provides. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we call upon you now to strengthen and increase our faith by the word and sacrament we have received today. When our minds are filled with doubt, stir up the word of God in our memory. When our consciences are pricked, assure us of the sufficiency of Christ's work in our behalf. When the enemy assails us, attempting to make us doubt our seat at the table of God, speak to our hearts so that we know the truth. Fill us with the boldness of the blood-bought children of God so that we live every moment in the assurance of our Father's favor and so that we spread this good news everywhere we can. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the true and greater Adam, our covenant redeemer. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand together. We're going to conclude with the word of benediction. And I encourage you, as always, I remind you, the benediction is not just a little formal thing. God's word of blessing is coming over you, and it is yours because of Jesus Christ. Reach out. Receive the blessing of God to go forth and live in it. Grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, be with us in truth and love. Go forth blessed to be a blessing. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.